So here's some exciting news. The On Being Saturday morning email newsletter is back. Curated by our wonderful colleague Kristen Lynn, The Pause is an offering towards the common life we hope to embolden and accompany. Our way of living the questions with you while also providing food for reflection and conversation. You'll receive updates on our latest conversations, writings and poetry from our blog, invitations to live events, and other news and musings. Subscribe now at onbeing.org slash thepause. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with author Elizabeth Gilbert. There's a shorter, produced version of this conversation at Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Hello. Come forward. Hello. Hi. Hi. Is that Liz? Yes, it is. I'm so glad to be talking. Oh my goodness! (laughs) I just said to Paul, I am so excited to be talking to Krista Tippett. Um, Hi, sweetheart. We we meet at last. I know. I'm kind of surprised we've never met. Um, I know. I mean, it's not that we exactly move in the same circles, but we move in some of this. We we move in a lot of concentric circles that you think would have overlapped into some sort of a Venn diagram of us being in the same room at the same time. Maybe it will happen now. I hope so. <laughs> um, and I send uh, regards from Miriam as well, oh. our, the wonderful. Right. Well, um, that's one thing we have in common. Yes. Miriam. And yes. Sarah, right? Two things, two Which really important huge. things yes. that we have in common. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, um, and no, also just congratulations <laughs> on your book. It's so beautiful. Thank it's you. It's so beautiful. I can't wait till it's out in the world and... Everybody can read it. It's out next week, you know. <laughs> oh God! I know it's Tuesday is the pub date. It's um. Oh, well, you know you've done this. It's just uh, yeah. it's kind of well. For one thing, it was um. It took. It was so. The process was so so. Let's not actually let's let's not talk about this because we okay. <laughs> we might talk about it in the conversation. This is why I basically like forbid any pre conversation. Yeah, so, you're right. Okay, too. let's you're be right superficial. Too. Let's see, yep. Chris. Do you need a do you need a sound check? Okay, just like tell us what you had for breakfast. Okay, that's all um, you're allowed oh, to say. This is the best. <laughs> answer I've ever been able to have. I had spaghetti and meatballs for breakfast. Wow. For, for real. Um, <laughs> and I now wish that I had it every single day for breakfast. Uh, uh, was that it was planned? Very I mean, did you like, did I, it just... I, it's the 10th anniversary of Eat, Pray, Love, and there was a thing on Good Morning America today about it. And as props, they made spaghetti and meatballs. And then I was like, wait, is this fake food or is it real food? If it's real food, I'm eating it. And it was delicious. And that was my breakfast. Oh, that's great. <laughs> um, so what an exciting answer that was for me for well, once. Well, I, so look, I can tell you in all these years, no one else has ever given that answer. <laughs> I wouldn't more, normally either. More testament to your originality. <laughs> okay. So can we, can we just start? Okay. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Oh, now I hear an echo. Hang on. Yeah, I was just making a quick adjustment. Um, I think Hi, I, Krista. Hey, I hear hey, an Paul. echo, Paul. Uh, wait, do I anymore? No, no I good. think it's because doors were open. Okay, cool. Okay. 
<laughs> I my notes are really messy. Um, I just there was just there's too much to talk about. So um, <laughs> so I but I I pretty much trust the process. So but it you know you know it's a real conversation. It's not necessarily linear. So. We'll see, we'll see how this works. I, I really had I to go it wherever down. you drive. Okay. I'm very right. excited to be on this road trip all with right. you. Let's, <laughs> let's do this. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, um, uh, you know, so I so I'll just say, you know, I've really been kind of diving into all kinds of things you've written across the years, and you know, Eat, Pray, Love, which I hadn't looked at for quite a while. That was kind of interesting because. Um, I read it so differently now, and I mean it's one. It's this subject that you write about, and that I, and that I talk about, right? That it is mm-hmm. these ideas are always going to hit everybody differently, depending on where they are in their life. So that, but that was kind of fascinating, still, even though I know that. Um, but what, I mean, so it was just let me just start with you know something I don't think I'd ever known before until I started reading about you is, which is so lovely, just to say you grew up in a small family Christmas tree farm. <laughs> That's such a wonderful way to start out your life, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> it, it it was, and and it's really where I'm from, you know, mm-hmm. in a in a very profound and important way. I can't imagine who I would be otherwise um, mm-hmm. if that hadn't been my my upbringing, my very particular upbringing. <laughs> yeah, very specific. <laughs> very specific was so. So was there, was there a spiritual or you know how would you talk about um, whatever you might call the spiritual or religious background? And I don't know. I guess Christmas Christmas time was working time, <laughs> but was there was there a, re- a religious uh, substance to that? All the time was working time, <laughs> um, which was a huge part of of the ethic of mm-hmm. my parents, um, and a, and a large part of why they wanted to live on a farm and have goats and chickens and a garden and a small business. And they wanted their daughters to be raised in that environment and to be very much um, entangled and enmeshed within that. Um, it, they wanted, you know, we were, it wasn't their farm, it was our farm. It was something <laughs> we were all doing together. And I would say that was the spiritual practice, if mm. if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I did go to church. I went to a, a congregationalist Protestant church, very very much what you're picturing when you imagine northwestern Connecticut in a small town. Um, you know, the white church, the pretty steeple, very stark, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, very uh, hesitant about passion, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, very much about community responsibility and self-accountability and, and, and those sorts of Yankee values. I, I can honestly say that I, I know this can't be true, but I barely remember like God and Christ being talked about in that yeah. church. I feel like they were almost uncomfortable and embarrassed to even talk about that more specifically. It was much more about a certain set of values. Yeah. Um, but what my parents were doing, what they were making um, out of that little piece of land and, and their lives was, I think, their creative and their spiritual endeavor. And the really wonderful thing about that is that it made me be able to grow up with a sense of vocation mm. and a sense of the insouciance and the entitlement, which is a weird word to use in this circumstance, but it is the right word for people who decided to create a life that they wanted uh, that didn't particularly make sense to anybody else 
for no reason other than that it brought them pleasure and satisfaction and purpose. And so although my parents didn't send me on an official spiritual path, and although they didn't send me on an official creative path, you know, they didn't say, go be a spiritual person, go be a creative person. They were both of those things, you know, um, yeah. in in the work that they were doing and in the way that they were doing it. And and that, I think, was everything. You know, there's a, um, on your Facebook page, um, you you posted, I think somebody was asking you a question, um, and people ask you all kinds of questions, um, about raising a creative child, right? Do you remember this? And you posted a yes. photo of you with your parents on the Christmas tree farm around 1974. Your father is holding a duck. Uh, and, <laughs> and you, I think you I'm tell, leaning on a goat. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And you say, but you tell the story, I think, or at least I've, you've, you've told the story, you know, that he was actually an engineer and your parents had this kind of the white picket fence existence, but they that wasn't the way they wanted to live. And, you know, one thing you say about when you moved to the farm, my bedroom was never heated again. <laughs> and and you said, yeah. I did not always love this life my parents had chosen, but that, you know, one, one way you talked about what you just said about, you said you grew up bearing witness to what creative living means. And that was how they yeah. imparted that to you. You know, people are always asking me, how do how do I teach my children? I want my children to be creative. And I don't have children myself, but, you know, something that makes a lot of sense to me that I've heard wise parents say is that your children will, by as a rule, never listen to anything you say. They're incapable of it. But they cannot equally, equally strong impulse. They cannot help imitating how you are. Right. And so this idea of trying to tell them a way to be rather than showing them a way to be. Um, I think it's inefficient and I think it's it's often a waste of time. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, similar to something my friend Rob Bell always says about when people say, I want my children to have a religious tradition, but I myself have fallen away from the church, but I, I don't want them to grow out. I'll grow send, them, it, send them to services or send them to Sunday yeah, school. Yeah, and he yeah. says, yeah. don't put your kids in front of some sort of a religious tradition that makes you mm -hmm. want to throw up in your mouth yourself. Mm -hmm. Why would you do that to your children? You know, um, show them what it means to to be a spiritual and generous person. Show them what it means to be an inquisitive and curious person. And I do define creative living as any life that you pursue where you make your decisions more consistently based on curiosity than by fear. Yeah. And that's what my parents modeled. Um, they wanted to raise bees, so they just went and got some bees one day and brought them home in a pickup truck, and they did it. They wanted goats. They went to a farm in the Ford Pinto and filled the back seat up with goats, and suddenly we had goats. They, you know, I just watched yeah. them do stuff like this all the time, and it was, it was really cool. Even as a child, even when I didn't like how the house wasn't heated and the plumbing often didn't work and there were so many chores that my friends didn't have. I knew there was something in me that knew these people are doing something very interesting because it's mm. different from what everybody else is doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I think that leads just directly into, you know, as I, 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 I've spent, I mean, I've read you across the years and then preparing to speak with you us dipping into various books and articles you've written and interviews you've given in your TED talks, and and there's so much we could there's so much we could talk about. But I think we're and you know one reason I think I, I've, of course I've been thinking about you all these years. But one reason I 
I didn't. I kind of resisted in interviewing you earlier because there was a time when, you know, eat, pray, love was everywhere. Mm. And what I've been so interested in is watching this evolution and development of you, you know, into, through, and beyond that. And so watching how you're processing that and how you're articulating what you're learning about life and kind of kind of inhabiting this role you have in people's lives, right? Whether you ask for it or not. Um, and so much of that uh, coalesces around this idea of what it means to be creative. And I think kind of demystifying that and then like but then so on the one hand demystifying creativity what did you say what's your definition um a creative living uh is choosing uh the path of curiosity over the path of fear which is pretty straightforward yeah yeah <laughs> but, but also yeah. using the language of magic right in your in your latest yeah. book big magic so so on the one hand demystifying and on the one hand revealing it as magic but kind of everyday attainable magic um Practical magic, uh-huh. <laughs> I think, is there's even a thing such as that, isn't there? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I do think that just because so, something is mystical doesn't mean it shouldn't also be demystified. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And maybe it's the mystical things that we need to demystify the most in order to lay claim to them, right? And to not keep thinking of them as something that only belongs to a very special class of people, you know? Um, the more mystical and 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 precious in a way that we make creativity and spirituality both, um, the more people get left out of it, yeah. you know. Um, and I think that's just I think that's a pity and a loss and sometimes even a, a tragedy. So so I guess what I'm trying to do is um, just dole out magic <laughs> wholesale <laughs> to whoever might want it at any given moment um, because it's it should be that all are invited or else what are we even doing here? Yeah. You know? I, just starting to read you on this, it brought back, I mean, I grew up in a, you know, very small town in a kind of what feels like a faraway place. I mean, um, and I, it brought back to me, and I wonder actually if a lot of people had this experience, and I always thought it was so, you know, singular to me, that I, I was fascinated with the whole idea of creativity, but it was, it was almost more like a longing than a fascination, mm-hmm. and it, it, I wanted to understand it, and I wanted to be it, but mm-hmm. I saw it as something that was, was somewhere out there in the world in other people, right? And that you had to be, right. you know, in some special way gifted, in some special way original, you know, an artist. And that's not, that didn't feel um, attainable to me or to describe me. And I, I, it seems like yeah. people are always, people are coming, a lot of people come to you with precisely that longing and feeling of being left out of the experience of creativity. Yeah, um, most people are left out of it, um, which is not even the right way to say it. Most people are cast out of it Hmm. um, because I think it's innate. And I think the evidence that it's innate is pretty airtight. (laughs) Um, And that evidence is multifold, but but here's some pieces of it. One, all of your ancestors were creative. Um, all of them, you and I and you know everybody we know were descended from tens of thousands of years of makers. Um, mm. The entire world, for better or for worse, has been altered by the human hand, um, by human beings doing this weird and irrational 
thing that we only we do um, amongst all our peers in the animal world, which is to waste our time <laughs> um, making things that nobody needs, <laughs> making things that nobody needs, making things a little more beautiful than they have to be, altering things, changing things, building things, um, composing things, shaping things. This is what we do. We're the making ape. Mm-hmm. And and no one is left out of the inheritance of that. That's our shared human inheritance. And, the, you know, another really strong piece of evidence is that every human child is born doing this stuff innately. It's an instinct. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, there's, there's, there's no child that you put crayons and paper in front of who doesn't, you know, get it, what you're supposed to do. And children um, are so much less self-conscious about it, too, than, than we become yeah, later. Uh, they, you know, no, you know, no four-year-old boy was ever, you know, sat in front of a pile of Legos and said, I don't know, I'm just, I'm not feeling it. <laughs> You know, I'm not. You know, I don't know if I can ever do. Right, or I'm not a Lego master, so I won't even try. I'm not as good. Or like last week, I did one that's so good. I don't know if I can ever do (laughs) another good one. You know, like they don't have that thing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I think what what we find often happens is that most people that I talk to can usually pinpoint with quite specific accuracy moments in their lives where certain artistic like um, expressions were taken away from them. You know, uh, where suddenly they were informed that they were not a good singer, um, or that yeah. they couldn't dance, or that yeah. they couldn't draw, and and it was and there's usually some shame, some shaming around it, um, often some public shaming, and I think what happens is that while everyone does this naturally and everyone's invited from the very beginning. Somebody decides along the way that, well, no, Heather is the creative one. Joshua is the creative one. She's good at music. He's a good artist. And those kids get shunted off into some sort of separate classroom or or separate curriculum. Um, And the other kids get this very strong message that you're not special. This doesn't belong to you. And we just need you to, you know, produce and consume. um, And and that's your role. And so you you get pushed out of it in a way. Um, And... The other weird side effect of that is that those special kids who get shunted into this into the category of being artistic or yeah. quote unquote creative, they often become neurotic basket cases because <laughs> it's a great deal of pressure to put upon two kids out of a hundred to say you're the special one. You know, um, now go deliver unto us our artistic dreams that nobody else is allowed to well, do. Well, right, and, you know, and it, it also crazy. does have that. You're right. Even when we um, cultivate and celebrate that, um, it. It has an effect of separating it out from everybody else, and it it becomes something that only special people do. And it becomes something that is not part of you and part of your daily life. Yes. It's not embroidered within you. It's not natural to you. It's some artificial thing that you then have to get very expensive training in. Um, And then you have to immediately start worrying about whether you can make a career out of this and whether you can make money out of this and whether you'll get a claim from this and whether you can continue to be recognized for this. And all of that is a very strange way to see creativity. And I would say a very new way, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. and, and... by new, I mean, you know, post-enlightenment, um, you know, last couple hundred years, and very Western. And I would also say very macho in a way, um, very male, because it comes with this grandiosity um, mm-hmm. that's on the individual and this pressure to be great and to be a genius. And also that it has to have some strange. kind of quantifiable, demonstrable value right? that is defined <laughs> in certain kind of linear ways what value is. I had a uh, one thing that's been really interesting side effect for me about writing Big Magic is it's made me I did not see this coming it's made me have to double down on my own creative courage so 
certain impulses that I've had over the years that I've cast away saying, gosh, I'd love to write poetry, but I'm not a poet. Mm -hmm. I'm not allowed to do that anymore because (laughs) I spend my life telling people they have to do this kind of stuff and take risks and try new things. So I wrote some poems recently, and a friend of mine who was a songwriter, I showed them to her, and she said, we should turn these into songs, and you should sing them, and we should get a band together, and we should get a recording studio, and we should make (laughs) some music. And and normally I would say no, but of course I I can't. Now I have to say yes, because I'm big magic girl, right? Mm -hmm. So just a week and a half ago, I sat in a studio for an afternoon with five friends who were musicians, and we recorded a song. And it was so cool. This thing hadn't existed, and at the end of the day, it did. And there was something so wonderful and collaborative and joyful about it. And the next day, I was at a meeting in New York, and I mentioned to somebody, I was was in the recording studio making a song over the weekend, and they said, what's it for? And (laughs) it's such a great question. (laughs) And I thought, what's it for? What is it for? Well, because, (laughs) you know, and even I sort of stammered and said, it's for joy and becoming right. and unfolding it, it, it and was communion. Fun. It wasn't, a, and wasn't it, an appropriate answer. <laughs> and, and it wasn't the greatest song that anyone ever made, but no one died from it. Yeah. <laughs> and I know more about myself than I did the day before we did that. And, and it's for saying that we're not just here to pay bills and die, and we're not just here to make great things. We're here to co-create our lives in, in accordance and in concordance with the creation that's going on all around us, and that that is holy and also cool and also fun and also not a big deal. <laughs> that's what it's for. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I mean, I think I think I think one thing, and and I think you also it took you a little while to come to this. I mean, one thing that you have started to say that is really helpful is um, that you've started to see the danger of this refrain that's everywhere out there in our culture to follow your passion, follow your passion. And that that also becomes a way that people feel themselves excluded because they're not sure what their artistic passion would be. Or again, if it's their passion, you know, can they really measure the value they're creating? And I love this. I love the language of curiosities. And I'd love for you to talk some more about that. I mean, one thing you've said is... uh, you know, as a the, the difference between passion and curiosity as something you're following is that curiosity is a milder, quieter, more welcoming, and more democratic entity. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I love curiosity, our friend. You know, I mean, I think curiosity is our friend that teaches us how to become ourselves, and it's a very gentle friend and a very mm. forgiving friend, and. Um, a very constant one. Passion is not so constant, not so gentle, not so forgiving, and sometimes not so available. You yeah. know? Um, and so when we live in a world that has come to fetishize passion above all, there's a great deal of pressure around that. And I think um, if you don't happen to have a passion that's very clear, or if you have lost your passion, or if you're in a change of life where your passions are shifting, or you're not certain, and somebody says, well, it's easy to solve your life, just follow your passion. Yeah. You know, I, I I do think that they have harmed you, you know, um, because they, it's not, it's not a helpful, it just makes people feel more excluded um, and, and more exiled and, uh, and sometimes like a failure. Yeah, um, exactly. I, you know, um, inadequate and, uh, somehow. Inadequate. Lacking. What's the matter yeah. with you? Why aren't you? Why you know? Why aren't you um, breathing lightning? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's a little bit like, gosh. I mean, even the word passion has this sort of sexual connotation that you're. You know, there's there's, you know, 
I'm much more interested in intimacy and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and in and in growing a relationship than everything has to be setting your head on fire. Um, and and curiosity is an impulse that just taps you on the shoulder very lightly and invites you to turn your head a quarter of an inch and look a little closer at something that has intrigued you. And it may not set your head on fire. It may not change your life. It may not change the world. It may not even line up with previous things that you've done or been interested in. It may it may seem very random and make no sense. And I think the reason people end up not following their curiosity is because they're waiting for a bigger sign, you know, um, and your curiosities sometimes are so mild and so strange mm-hmm. and um, and so almost almost nothing, right? It's a little trail of breadcrumbs that you can overlook if you're looking up at the mountaintop waiting for Moses to come down um, and and give you a sign from God. Yeah, you know? um, right. He says it gives you curiosity, it gives you clues. It's clues. <laughs> doesn't necessarily and, give you a destination at all, right? <laughs> it doesn't. And, yeah. and here's the thing. Sometimes following your curiosity will lead you to your passion Sometimes it won't, and then guess what? That's still totally fine. <laughs> You've lived a life following your curiosity. You've created a life that is a very interesting thing, different from anybody else's. And your life itself then becomes the work of art, not so much contingent upon what you produced, but about a certain spirit of being mm-hmm. that I think is a lot more interesting and also a lot more sustainable. Yeah, use the language, um, the virtue of inquisitiveness. <laughs> it's <great>. everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, today it was so funny. I was just walking over here to the to the studio today, and it's a really cold day. And there was a um a, a woman who looked very ill, an elderly woman sitting in a wheelchair, waiting for a car to come out of a parking garage to pick her up. And my first instinct, looking at her, was pity that it was cold, and she's old, and she's sick, and she's in a wheelchair. And and then I saw that she was craning her neck to look over this little wall because there was a newspaper an old newspaper on the other side of the wall, and she was just wanting to see what it was or what the headline was. And I and I thought, that to me is the definition of human vitality. Yeah. Um, she's bothering to care about this random scattered thing on the ground. What is that thing over there? You know, and as long as you're doing that, <laughs> all of a sudden she stopped looking to me like a, a subject of pity and started looking like a really interesting person because mm. I think a definition of an interesting person is an interested person, you mm. know? Um, and the fact that in that one glimpse, I saw somebody who was interested in something so random <laughs> made me be interested in her. Um, I've never met an interesting person who's not also an interested person. Yeah, I love that. Um, a- another phrase that you that, that feels pivotal for you as you have thought about a life of creativity and all the manifestations that can take um, this language of stubborn gladness (laughs) and you've taken it from a poet who I had never heard of with whom you share a name Jack Gilbert Um, and you know one of the things you a story you tell about him that I loved is that the students you met who he had said he didn't so much teach them how to how to write poetry but why to write poetry? And it was because of delight. And again, that's another way of like finding fresh and actually enjoyable ways in to, to endeavors that we've, I don't know, we've kind of separated ourselves from and then lost part of ourselves. Well, we live in this kind of artistic cult of martyrdom 
um, which is, you know, martyrdom is a joyless endeavor. And um, when you decide that the only way a person is a serious artist is if they are dying a little bit from it, you mm-hmm. know, um, or a lot from it, which we're very attracted to, um, that's a storyline that we almost never get sick of of seeing right. as the person who died, the, you know, the red shoes, <laughs> um, where you dance yourself to death um, and you're consumed by the great fire. There's something very glamorous about that. And I think young people, particularly romantic young people, which, you know, tends to be what those of us who have a creative spirit kind of show up as, right, mm-hmm. um, can be very attracted to that. But it's a bit of a death cult. Um, and Some and of that suffering and creativity are oh, linked. And... and you know, there is a sort of whole world of people who would say, if you're not in pain while you're making art, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> and again, I do not think this is how tens of thousands of years of human beings made their art. Um, I think this is a, also a very modern idea. Yeah, it's a very grandiose idea, um, and and it's a kind of a drug. Um, mm. And and to this is not to say that darkness does not exist. Um, I'm very respectful of of darkness. Um, but to bow at the altar of darkness at the exclusion of all other human emotions and urges is to live a half-life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because that's not all it is. There's also joy. There's also wonder. There's also epiphany. There's also community. There's also grace. There's also playfulness. My goodness, how did we lose playfulness and creativity? That's a terrible, that's a terrible thing to have misplaced um, yeah. along the way. And really um, what you're, yeah. I mean, what you're, you're, ta- you're talking about the link between creativity and suffering, but I, I do think that it's, it's just resonant with the larger human enterprise. And I mean, we do that with 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 our with all of our productivity, right? <laughs> like if right. you're not suffering, if you're not overwhelmed and too busy, um, and sacrificing, and if there's not some kind of noble uh, joylessness in it, then somehow it's probably not as important as that other person's productivity. Right? I mean, I'm, just, I'm laughing because I'm just having a memory of my grandfather saying, um, drag your guts around like a wounded fly and make sure everyone can see you doing it. Really? <laughs> he would say that as a sort of as a joke, but about that sort of, oh, you know, like, was, yeah. everything is so hard. Yeah. And, then, you know, I mean, I don't know about you, but I know that I have to be very careful not to jump into... Um, the tiredness contest, yeah. you know, that seems to be going on in most of my peers. Like, oh, I'm so tired. How tired are you? I'm ex- I'm a, I'm a card-carrying tired. member, all right. I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> like this, this recitation of this, like, the, yeah. the rosary of exhaustion, you know, how much... Oh, I didn't... Oh, I haven't slept. Oh, I guess I'm oh, so God, far behind. It's embarrassing, yeah. You know, it is. I do it, too. I do it, too. Mm-hmm. But I have to catch myself saying, mm-hmm. um, come on, really? Is this all we're... Mm-hmm. Is this what have you bought into here? Um, that that this has become the measure of your seriousness and your and your discipline and your productivity. Yeah, I mean, so here's this. Here are these lines of the poet Jack Gilbert: "We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of the world." <laughs> Good. I just got. Uh, I have the word stubborn gladness tattooed on my arm. Do you really? 
I do, yeah, um, because I think it's everything. <laughs> and the reason I love that poem so much is that, again, he doesn't deny. I mean, he puts those words, stubbornness and gladness, right inside the phrase about the ruthless furnace yeah. of the world. You know, mm-hmm. He doesn't pretend. I know the first line of that poem is suffering everywhere, right? Um, mm. It's the first line, suffering everywhere. Look, it's everywhere. Um, there's no denial of that. And yet, you know, something in us, something in the universe, there's some sort of spirit that also wants to be glad and also wants to be amazed and also wants to be engaged. And we can't lose that um, because then we've lost everything. He has another line in there, which I don't know if I know by heart, but it's something about to to only give your attention to, to darkness and suffering is to worship the devil or to give mm-hmm. your power to the devil. Um, and, you know, you have to be careful about this, especially when you you have an impulse to be a good person, a quote-unquote good person. Um, and your definition of a good person is, is somebody who gives everything to others. Um, it's a beautiful impulse, but if it's done from a place of, of, of only giving darkness and suffering your attention, then you become somebody who's very difficult to be around. Yes. You know, there's a, a lovely line that this, um, this, this British columnist said one time, that you can always tell people who live for others by the anguished expressions on the faces of the others. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, there's some heaviness in there that mm-hmm. just spreads out of you and makes everyone feel heavy and even makes the people that you're serving feel heavy because they feel like they're a burden and a responsibility. And and so if you can find the gladness and the lightness, I think your service becomes better and I think your art becomes better and I think um, I think your worship becomes better and lighter. And, you know, there. I think there is that dynamic, that that dialectic in the way you approach the creative process, even your your creative process. And there's that kind of, what's the, you know, holding those things in a creative tension, the gladness and the furnace, um, our stubbornness, our stubborn gladness against the world's ruthless furnace. Um, I mean, the 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 and and that and that kind of is a way to talk about to get into the kind of very mysterious process of creation. Um, I mean, you when you talk about your how you write, like when you're writing, I think you say you don't write every day. Here's one thing. I always thought that well, who was it, Graham Greene, that always wrote 500 words a day? Was it 500 words, thousand words a day? Like I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. For years, I thought, well, if I'm not writing yeah. my 500 words, because of course anybody should be able to do that. If I can't do that, then I'm not. Writing. Yeah. I'd never write. But you said you don't write every day. You write by season. Yeah. You're, you write book by book. But when you're writing, it's you're kind of back on the Christmas tree farm, right? I mean, you are getting up early and going to work and yeah. taking care of really granular things about your well-being and the let me talk a little bit about that that yeah um the christmas tree farm is a great metaphor and i think one of the reasons that both my sister and i ended up being being authors is because we were taught how to do boring things for a long time (laughs) you know and i think that's really important because here is one of the grand misconceptions about creativity and when people dream of quitting their boring job so that they can have a creative life, 
one of the risks of great disappointment is the realization that, oh, this is also a boring job <laughs> um, a lot of the yeah. time. It's certainly tedious. I mean, I would ra- it's a boring job I would rather do than any other boring job. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the most interesting boring job I've, I've ever had. Um, but <laughs> but my every, s- <laughs> every job has boring in it, right? Yes. I mean, yes. people romanticize my job a lot. And yeah. I just say, yeah, yes, there is this amazing thing I get to do, but it's like 5% <laughs> right, yes. of how I spend my days. And, yes. And any job has that. I mean, I have a theory that I'm just growing, and I haven't really put a roof on it, but I'll throw it out there, which is that everything that is interesting is 90% boring. Yeah, um, that's and, right. And we are sort of in a culture that's addicted to the good part, right? Mm-hmm. The exciting part, the fun mm-hmm. part, the, the, the reward. Um, but, but every single thing that I think is fascinating is mostly boring. So travel, for instance, is something that's really important to me that I love. Mostly it's really boring. Mostly you're just in airports or you're in a city that's not as interesting as you thought it would be, or you're in a museum and you just kind of want lunch or you're, you know, you're, you're wishing that you could understand the language more. You're feeling disoriented or jet lagged, but then there's that thing that happens that would not have happened had you not bothered to take yourself to Croatia and Seeing that thing in that moment is worth the boredom of the 90% of the rest of the time. Mm-hmm. Marriage. I mean, good Lord, can there be anything more fascinating than joining <laughs> two souls together in union and to spend a life entwined? 90% boring. But then there's, then there's like the reason right. why there's that thing that happens, you know, even 10, 20 years in where suddenly you're like, we never would have done this had we not stayed through everything. Raising children. I mean, I, I'm not a mother, but I'm a stepmother. I'm a grandmother. I'm a godmother. I'm an aunt. And I know that 90% of especially being with very small children. I mean, it's hard labor, right? Incredibly, I mean, it's, it's hard. Yeah. And then there's the moment where you realize, oh, my God. God, this is a spark of creation that I'm mm-hmm. that I'm working with, and this is magic, and this is life seen through new eyes. And creativity is the same, where ninety percent of the work is quite tedious, and then something will occur that you could not have achieved any other way. That makes all of the research and all of the discipline and all of the you know the Tuesday morning where you really don't feel like doing it quite worth it. And if you can, you know. Stick through those parts, um, you know, not rush through the experiences of life that have the most possibility of transforming you, um, but to stay with it until the moment of transformation comes. And then through that to the other side, then very interesting things will start to happen within very boring frameworks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But those, but somehow, uh, and, uh, you know, for, for some of us, this just comes with practice. I mean, you just experience it so much. I think it's like, I, you know, it's hard to talk to younger people about this for them to believe you. But the, that, how many of those moments along the way to that, something that you'll be able to say this was transformative, they don't feel transformative at all, right? They feel... No. They, they can feel messy. They can feel awful. They can feel like failure. Yeah. And so but you have I to trust think... that those can also be places on right. the way. Yeah. Well, trust is a big piece of it, isn't it? Um, you know, mm-hmm. um, and and I think motion is a big piece of it. You mm-hmm. know, I I've learned to give myself all the credit in the world simply for being in motion. Um, mm. Did you do something today? You know, toward this thing, then you're good. <laughs> you know? Was it was it great? <laughs> no. Was it fun? No. Did you? But did you do it? Did you keep the ball rolling? Did you keep 
another step on that path going, then you're fine. That's it. Mm. Um, You know, I'm a great believer in the power of the kitchen timer. Um, My mom, I think the two great superhero, powerful talismanic objects that my mom bequeathed to me were the, the list and the kitchen timer. <laughs> yeah. She's a great list maker. These yeah. are the things we have to do today. And they don't have to do perf- be done perfectly. They just have to be done by 4 o'clock. You know? right. um, and here is the kitchen timer, which we will set through these tasks. We have mm-hmm. half an hour to do this. Mm-hmm. We have 40 minutes to do this. You have to sit and practice the piano for 35 minutes. Here's the kitchen timer. We're going to work on your homework for this amount of time. And there's some great, really great relief that can be found and just knowing, like, I only have to do this for another 10 minutes, <laughs> right. but I have to do it every day. Yeah. And it adds up in really remarkable ways. Yeah, I, love, I, I, love, I love that, just the, the idea of motion itself being a virtue. And because it's, it's, it's something, I mean, it's just, it's real. It's realistic. It's, there's, there's nothing cerebral about that. But, you know, I, I, and I um, have you ever... Do you know that book by Annie Dillard, The Writing Life? Yes, I do. There's this, there are these sentences that um, that I read there years ago, and I, I kind of put them in front of myself recently when I was writing this book, which was so painful. Um, and she said, at its best, the sensation of writing is that of any unmerited grace. It is handed to you. But only if you look for it. You search, you break your heart, your back, your brain. And then, and only then, it is handed to you. <laughs> and I thought of that when I was reading, you know, how you go back and forth in Big Magic, especially between, you know, yes, you work like a farmer. And then sometimes there's this fairy dust thing that happens. And it's both I, and. Both and. Yes. Thank you for saying that because I feel like the choice, the false choice that people are given are these two ideas. One is that it's all coming from me. Nothing funny is going on here. Um, there is no spirit moving across the, <laughs> the face mm-hmm. of the earth. Um, I'm just a pile of DNA. My cerebral cortex is firing off, and that is why my creativity exists, right? It's all me. It's only me, which is great, except then how do you explain the mysterious part that you can't explain about why one day you were in flow? Um, and it did feel like, Something was coming through you, not from you. And you brushed up against a sense of great mystery and communion. And then the next day, Wednesday morning, it was gone. (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, that's just too hard to explain Mm -hmm. in very empirical terms, you know. Um, And then the other other choice you're given is the very hippy-trippy idea of, I'm just a vessel. (laughs) I'm just a vessel. Hey, look, it just comes through me. Then why am Mm -hmm. I so tired? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Because I've been working hard. So there's some sort of there's some third way um, yes. and I think the yeah. third way is it's a collaboration between a human being's labors and the mysteries of inspiration and that's the most interesting dance that I think you can be involved in but you are very much an agent in that story you're not just mm-hmm. a passive receptacle um, and also it's not entirely in your hands um, and standing comfortably within that contradiction is I think where you find sanity in the creative process, if you can find it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and again, just back to your idea of motion, like you keep moving forward. Do a thing. Just do a thing. And 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 even if it's not the thing that you're dreaming of, you know, um, 
my friend Ann Patchett puts this beautifully. She's a novelist and, and great memoirist. Um, and she said her favorite part of the creative process is at the beginning when she has the idea and she's alone with the idea and the idea is a piece of perfection. Right, the exactly. idea circles her head and the way she describes mm. it, she says, the idea is a, um, an amethyst butterfly that circles her head and catches the light, and she's alone with it, and she knows this is the one that's going to make her win the Nobel Prize. This is the, you know, like, this is the best novel. And she doesn't have to share it with anybody, and she doesn't have to make it. She just has to enjoy the pleasure of this perfection that does not exist. And then when the moment comes to sit down and actually make that book, take it out of the unreal and bring it, usher it, midwife it into the real... The first thing she has to do is sort of pluck that imaginary amethyst butterfly from the sky and put it on the table in front of her and smash it with a mallet. <laughs> right, right. Because it can never be made. And the more she's addicted to wanting to create that thing that can never be created, the harder it's going to be for her to do her job, which is to make what she is capable of making now. And I think what a friendly artist, when I say friendly, I mean somebody who's who's has a friendly curiosity about their art and about themselves. And I think that sense of of, um, of 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 sort of open-hearted, forgiving, oh well, you know, mm-hmm. um, the absence of perfectionism. What that artist does, and and this is how I've come to feel about my work, is I cobble together my attempt to make an amethyst butterfly is always just so bizarre. I, I mean, I end up making this thing that looks nothing like the glittering dream. You know, mm-hmm. it's 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 bits of like cigarette butts and old playing cards and piece of plywood I found behind the school and some chewing gum and paint and I hammer this thing together <laughs> and claim that it's an amethyst butterfly mm-hmm. and I look at it and one of the hinges doesn't work and it's all lopsided and yet the feeling I have at this point in my life when I look at that finished thing is that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a pretty cool thing. No one ever made one like that before. Mm-hmm. Maybe for good reason but the the dream of the thing wasn't a real thing, and this is a real thing that has life in it and spirit in it, and I kind of like it, and now I want to go make another one. Um, and we can leave the amethyst butterflies to the dream of perfection that is the death of all fun and all play <laughs> and all joy. <laughs> you you have this wonderful idea that, I, I, I think this is partly the way you said it and partly the way I wrote it down, that our, that our planet is inhabited by ideas, that ideas are part like a part of the ecosystem, part of the biosphere, <clears throat> like other living beings, that they that ideas interact with other inanimate and inanimate matter. And actually, I think you 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 talk about um, articulating that idea through an experience you had with Ann Patchett, where you both yeah. realized you were kind of writing the same book or at least you had what was a very similar starting point so you kind of had the same amethyst butterfly sitting in front of you and that was so bizarre to find out just tell that story yeah um this is the most magical thing that's ever and when i say magical i mean it very much in the hogwartsian sense of magical Mm -hmm. um i had an idea for a novel and it was to be about a um, I'll just summarize it very quickly. A, a, a middle-aged spinster from Minnesota who had been working at the same company for 25 years and was quietly in love with her married boss who sort of 
you know, she was invisible to him. Um, he gets involved in a very ill-advised scheme down in the Amazon jungle and sends a bunch of money and a person down there, and the money and the person disappear, and then he sends her down there to figure out what happens, at which point her orderly life is flipped upside down into chaos. And it's also a love story. And um, I, you know, I, I wrote a, a, a proposal for this novel. I got a book advance for it. I started working on it. I was doing research for it. And then I got waylaid by some other things that were going on in my life and ended up writing a completely different book. And I left it aside. And when I came back a few years later, I found that the life force energy, for lack of a better term, the spirit of that book was no longer there. And um, it was, a, it was a, I describe it as being the, the husk of a, um, huh. what's uh, the shell? No, what do we call it? Snake skin. Right. Um, okay, right. Yeah. You know, there's no snake left, uh-huh. just the skin. And around that same time, I met and made friends with the novelist Ann Patchett. And um, we had this very dynamic and exciting meeting where we um, sort of, admitted that we loved each other's work and, and she gave me a big kiss right on the lips and and <laughs> we became pen pals and we started writing letters to each other and about a month later she wrote me a letter saying she had just started working on a book about the Amazon jungle and um, and I told her why well, that's so strange I had been working on one too but it's gone and and then a few months later we met and I you know she said tell me what your Amazon book was about and now she was a hundred pages into hers and I described my story and she said You've got to be effing kidding me. Um, Her book, which, of course, became the extraordinary novel State of Wonder, was a book about a middle-aged spinster from Minnesota who'd been working (laughs) for for this company for 25 years and had been quietly in love with her married boss, to whom she was invisible. Um, Mm. He got involved in a harebrained scheme down in the Amazon, sent a bunch of money and a person down there. The money and the person went missing, and she was sent down to recover it. And it was exactly the same Story, And we like to think, then we did that thing that, you know, pregnant women do where they count backwards to figure out when conception <laughs> occurred, right? first, right? <laughs> and so we did the math and it was really at the same time that I had lost mine that she had gotten hers. And we like to think that the idea jumped from my mind to hers during our, our little kiss that we had when we met. Um, that's our magical thinking around it. But it's, it's, there is no explanation for that mm. um, other than the one that I've always abided by, which is that... Ideas are conscious and living and they have will and they have great desire to be made and they spin through the cosmos looking for human collaborators mm. and they will do whatever it takes to find one. And if you're not the one, they'll go to Ann Patch. <laughs> <laughs> um, they don't care. They just want to be made. They're looking yeah. for the novelist who will actually do the work. <laughs> you know, I was thinking I had a conversation with Ro- Roseanne Cash once and she started talking about the process of songwriting and she's using this language like you have to have your catcher's mitt on, right? Similar thing. Oh, isn't that nice? And then, and then she said, Actually, I went back and looked at the transcripts, and she said, "And she said you have to have your catcher's mitt on." I said, "Which is just fascinating thing about." It. She said, "Yeah, and sometimes I'm afraid if I don't get it down, then somebody else will." She said something like, "I don't. It, it might be Lucinda. <laughs> like Lucinda Williams might get this one if I don't." Which is exactly the same thing you're saying. Yes, exactly. Um, and and you know, there's. Um, Look, this exists in the scientific world as well, right? right? Like, right. Um, there are these stories of of, of simultaneous discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, it's 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 Alfred Russell Wallace and and Charles Darwin figuring yeah. out um, the theory of evolution at the same moment. You know, it's it, it, this is something that we hear happening again and again, and and it's nothing to be afraid of. I mean, I think it's something to just marvel in and be delighted in, and if you can have faith that that there are 
endless more ideas that are just looking to be fostered. Um, and you can show that you are the one who will do them. You know, I always feel like I um, one of the reasons I try not to be a complaining and suffering artist is because I don't think ideas like working with people who complain about them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, I think like, like us, ideas prefer to be around people who enjoy their company. So I always try to send the message like, <laughs> Look, I love you guys. Any, you know, and and if and, you know, if some petulant novelist is complaining, just come over to me. <laughs> I'm available. I'm here at my desk at six a.m. I'm ready. Um, I don't want word getting around the universe that I'm hard to work with. You know, like I want to. I want to show that I'm. I'm ready. I'm here. Let's let's go. Let's play. Um, One thing you actually say to um, to people. I mean, you you actually say that. Uh, when you're when you're when you're talking to people about how to get going or how to live into this part of yourself, you actually say that stopping complaining, just that, is actually a trick to get more creative. It's a trick for a lot of things. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it really. I have a friend who has a, a policy she started with her 13 year old daughter that seems to be working really well, where she gives her a five-minute window of complaint. Um, and again, here's the, here's the beauty and the sacredness of the kitchen timer. <laughs> um, you have five minutes to get it all out. And she said the fascinating thing is that when you, when you do that in a really focused way, it's very hard to fill that five minutes. Um, in fact, it's very hard for her daughter to fill one minute. Um, you know, you sort of run out. <laughs> um, and the idea is, well, let's just get it out and then, and then, and then we'll get on with it. Um, but, I, but I don't think that complaint is a very inviting state um, in which to be. And I feel like I want to constantly be in a state of, of openness to all sorts of things. And, com- and I think complaining is just a sort of I think of it as one of those garage doors that comes down over a storefront mm. at night. You know, mm-hmm. it really, you know, it's loud. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's clanging. They're never decorated, you know, um, except yeah. by graffiti and and garbage. It's just, it's just not a very, it's just not what I want to put forward onto the street where I live. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I want to do it more interestingly than that. And there's also kind of a, a noble guilt that one can have in this culture and you know those of us who are fortunate to be able to buy and read books like yours um, talking about you know bringing forth the treasures within us and I was just like you know talking a minute ago about how we also tend to be very focused um, and you know kind of the message messaging that's coming towards us very focused on the ruthless furnace of the world mm-hmm. um how do you how do you respond to the question of you know this this creativity you're talking about is is this is this a luxury for privileged people? No, um, this is a shared human inheritance, um, because the evidence of that is again let us look to our ancestors, and I ask you and me right now to think back to our great grandparents and the making that they did in the world. Mm. Um, I don't come from a line of privileged people. I'm assuming you don't either. Most of us are not born of landed gentry. No, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the Toke, the, de Tocqueville was not my ancestor, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, my ancestors were, were like probably like yours and, and most people's. They were farmers and workers. Um, and yet they made beauty. Uh, they made beauty not just 
out of boredom. Um, sometimes it was because winter nights in Minnesota are very long, mm-hmm. and this was before the age of media to entertain you. You had to do something with your hands. Um, they made it because it brought them joy. They made it as a currency in the communities in which they lived. They made it um, because of the pleasure of doing something that's better than it has to be. Um, you know, so my grandmother, who made beautiful rag rugs and quilts. Um, they're more beautiful than they need to be. Um, they're practical because they're a way to use. They were, I should say, she just died last year at 102. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, they were a way to use to be frugal. Um, she had a bunch of kids and no money, so it's a way to use scrap material and make warm bedding when you're making a quilt. All you really have to do to do that is just hatch together, you know, hash together a bunch of material and you're fine. But that wouldn't suffice, you know. Um, the quilts that she made are magnificent. And they are far more magnificent than they need to be for for any particular reason. And these are people who had nothing. And your history is filled with those people as well. And I would argue that most of the most beautiful and interesting things in the world that have ever been made were made by people who didn't have enough time, didn't have enough resources, didn't have probably any education, um, didn't, you know, didn't have these, these lofty ideas that we have about art, but who had a receptiveness to those conscious and willful ideas that wanted to be born through them um, and felt entitled to do those things and make that work and oftentimes to show it and to trade it and to um, become masters at, at something that, that was quite beautiful. So so no, I would say absolutely not. Now look, does this mean that everybody can afford to go to art school? Um, no. I don't even believe in art school. <laughs> you know, I didn't go to art school. I have a whole chapter in my book about my feelings about people going tens and sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars into debt to get an yeah. arts education. Yeah. You know, um, I, you know, I, I'm not, a, I'm not a necessarily an advocate of that. Um, but, but no, this is not something that belongs now, nor has ever belonged to the leisure class. This is something that belongs to human beings who are behaving in the way that human beings are, are designed hmm. to behave. Um, using your senses and your curiosity and your materials and whatever's at hand to alter your environment and make something more beautiful than it needs to be. That's who we are. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about how the way we have kind of dismissed art and creativity as a luxury is a way we've diminished um, ourselves. Oh, good Lord, Mm -hmm. in huge ways, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I also feel like I, I, I don't... You don't make this this um, connection overtly a lot, but I I think that the notion of creative living and amplified existence of creativity as a as a virtue for our public life as well as for private life um, is very resonant right now, especially when you define it as you know a life driven more by courage than by fear and what grows out of that. Help me understand your question more. What you mean by by public life? I'm well, I mean, just I mean, you I know. Sure so here's gonna... here's something you said, and this is a piece you wrote for. Um, this is a magazine piece, Condé Nast Traveler. You're talking about we must all be travelers. We must all be explorers. What you said is, I am not afraid of the world, but I'm afraid of people who are afraid of the world. Mm. And you know, say I want to live in a society filled with people who are curious and concerned about each other, rather than afraid of each other. So, kind of taking this virtue of investigation, of a, mm. of, of that gentle friend of curiosity, mm-hmm. as something that we can live by, um, would be good for us collectively, right? 
Sure, it's a public service. It's a public, yeah, <laughs> right. And and For thinking about reasons, creativity yeah. as something like what if we what if we talked about creativity as a virtue for how we approach so many of these you know challenges of of the polit- this political moment, this economic moment moment. Well, I mean, I do think this is a very clear thing. Terrified people make terrible decisions, mm. you know, um, and we can see that collectively in the way societies behave. Um, and we can see that very personally in our own lives. Um, I mean, I can I can certainly say that the worst choices I've ever made, um, the ones that might still be the ones that keep me up at three o'clock in the morning in working through a little bit of shame, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> tended to be born of, of some sort of terror, um, you know? And, and so it, terror and fear make you irresponsible. Um, they make you, uh, they make you not think very clearly, right? And mm-hmm. and they make you willing to do almost anything to get rid of that te- that awful feeling. Um, and and we've seen people do that on the individual level, and we've seen cultures do that, and and we've seen politicians who find ways to exploit terror and fear in order to um, get short term power, um, or sometimes long term power. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it, it, if you can figure out how to hold the reins of other people's fear, then you can control them for a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it often doesn't end well for the charioteer who's mm-hmm. <laughs> who's at the back of all those those wild, fearful horses. But but you can certainly control people for right, a while. Right. And and so one of uh, you know one of the very most powerful ways to to not end up being controlled by that is to remain more curious than you are afraid. Um, I think it will make you make better decisions and it will also listen I think any time in the community there's anybody who's keeping their head I think it's a benefit to everyone around them mm-hmm. um, I think you know everything is contagious we're we're a monkey tribe right so right. Um, our fear is contagious but our courage also is and and our courage makes other people be able to be more brave and come out of their houses and come out of their their shells and and out of their fear yeah you were I mean I think in this piece I'm 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 looking at you were you were telling a story about being in Indonesia in 2002 and was that so when did you when did you pu- publish Eat Pray Love was that 2006 Yeah so that trip I was talking about in that article was actually not my Eat Pray Love trip that was a um So that was that another was a, time when your life looked like a dropped time. pie everything was on the floor in pieces Yes. <laughs> You've had more than one of those? Well, actually, I would say that that was the middle of the period of okay. my life that looked like a drop pie, and okay. Eat, Pray, Love was the end Got of it. that life. So this this period that I was talking about was very much, I was still in the worst of what I then ended <laughs> okay. up discussing in Eat, Pray, Love. But yeah, that, okay. would, that was um, drop pie central right then. I would say All that right. was the, the worst part of my Bad life. Bad divorce, yeah. losing your house, losing your husband, losing your money, losing your friends, losing sleep, losing yourself, and then... This stranger, this woman just kind of gives you solace, nurses you back to life. And, you know, you said, um, and I feel like you've had a lot of those experiences, partly because you've put yourself out there <laughs> um, <laughs> to be vulnerable, to be needy, to be, to be a strange, to be alone in strange places. But you, I, just, I just love this. I'll, I want to read it. You said, I want to live in a world full of explorers and generous souls rather than people who have voluntarily become prisoners of their own fortresses. I want to live in a world full of people who look into each other's faces along the path of life and ask, who are you, my friend, and how can we serve each other? Yeah, that woman was so extraordinary. I had um, gone to, I had a very dumb idea, it turned out, (laughs) 
um, that what I really needed was to just be alone and as far away from everyone in the world as I could get. And I went to this island off the coast of Lombok in Indonesia and rented a, a thatched cottage on the beach for $10 a day. For And I decided for 10 days I wasn't going to speak. Um, I don't advise that if you're in the state that I was in. <laughs> mm-hmm. What I probably really needed was to be around community and maybe some therapists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, putting putting a magnifying lens on yourself when you're in distress like that can be can be very hard. And I ended up getting sick. And I used to take a walk around this island every day because it was such, such a small island. You could walk it every day. And it was a little Muslim fishing village. And there was this woman who used to be standing outside her house every time I walked by and she would see me and smile at me. And she was the only human-to-human point of contact that I had during that time. And when I got sick and I was stuck in my little shack, very, very ill, I was afraid I had malaria, I was so sick, um, she came and found me. She she knew that she had been keeping an eye on me. And I think it's one, because I was the foreigner in a very intimate community where people know each other's comings and goings, and so she was aware of me. And I think it was because she could see from my face and my behavior, there's something not right with this person. And it was, and indeed, she was correct. I was, I was suffering through a period of extreme depression, and I didn't keep my schedule. I usually walked around the island at dawn and at dusk. And when she didn't see me, she came and found me. And when she saw how sick she was, she brought me food. Mm. And I think, you know, I've never forgotten this woman. Um, and and what I think I learned from her was, pay attention to what's happening in your community. <laughs> you know, um, there's. That's what it means to be deeply engaged with the place where you live, you know, such that you will see when someone is in trouble. And and that's what I've tried to become in my own life, you know, Um, whether that community is my literal community of the the town where I live or even my online community, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, if you if you can read the comments, I know people say not to, Mm -hmm. but, you know, read the comments and and find the person who's really crying out in trouble and ask the your community on Facebook to give advice and help to this person. You know, there's there's ways that you can you can reach toward people rather than away from them. Mm-hmm. And and you can do that. I know we talk often in the society about how terrible social media and the internet is, but used properly, that too can become a tool of, yeah. of outreach, a way of knocking on someone's door. Yeah, we get to make it saying, what we want it to be. We it's, get to make it's, it's just us. It's just us writ large. Um and and she set a real tone for me of, of of how to be not so buried in your own problems or in your own distractions that you are incapable of seeing what's right in front of you and who's right in front of you. Mm-hmm. It's it's also actually a wonderful example of how when, you know, these things we do, when we kind of step outside ourselves, I mean, that was that was a creative act, right? It was an act of curiosity. Oh. Um, it's. I mean, there are all these yeah. ripple effects that she'll never, she couldn't comprehend, and and that's yeah. good enough, right? Like we have to also just trust that that those ripple effects happen, and we do. Well, it, it comes back to our original statement: What's it for? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what's it for? It's mm-hmm. for life affirmation. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's because we're still here. It's because the universe is looking for collaborators. You know, um, because creation's not finished. Um, it's not something that happened in seven days and ended. Um, it's an ongoing story that we're part of. And it's a much more interesting way to be part of that story, to work in collaboration and in partnership and in friendly curiosity with it than 
to be terrified of it. I mean, look, life is life is a very risky affair, and you know what could be more fascinating and terrifying than the, this reality about a human existence, that, which is that literally anything can happen to literally anybody at literally any moment. <laughs> you know. Um, and to live in the awareness of that without needing to drown it out or dull it out or suffocate it or deny it um, is quite an exhilarating way to live. Um, yeah. And and then you can start to participate as much as possible in how that story unfolds. Would you would you describe um, your happiness jar? <laughs> and also, how long have you been doing that? And how did you start doing that? Um, I started that. And around 2005, and um, wow, so I've had it a really long time. It's a giant antique apothecary jar mm-hmm. that's filled now with thousands of tiny little pieces of paper upon which I have written every day the happiest moment of the day. It's not quite the same thing as a gratitude journal. I think gratitude and happiness are different things. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, I, you know, I think you can be grateful even when you're unhappy. Um, and Gratitude is sort of an enduring state of being. Happiness is a sort of is sort of a peak moment right. <laughs> um, of something really good happening. <laughs> um, and I did it because I had such an extraordinary experience when I went traveling around the world for Eat, Pray, Love. I felt such amazement that I had managed to pull myself out of depression and back into joy. And I felt like the the project now would be to sustain it. You know, um, and to sustain it even when you don't get to be living in Italy for four months, eating whatever you want, um, or falling in love in Bali, right? Like, can Mm -hmm. you sustain it in New Jersey? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Can you sustain it on random weekdays? Can you sustain it through everything? And and that means staying awake, um, I guess, putting my catcher's mitt on, um, to quote Roseanne Cash, (laughs) um, to to be awake to the great moments of, of your life and be grateful for them and be happy about them. So... Um, the interesting thing to me about it is that those moments are so – they're so small and insignificant, you know. They're very seldom are they anything you would think of as sort of a rock star moment mm-hmm. of achievement um, or victory, you know, um, or acclaim. They are – they come at very surprising times and and they could very easily be overlooked. And what I love about thrusting my fist down into that <laughs> apothecary jar full of notes and pulling one out from 2007 or 2008 is that they are utterly forgettable. You know, um, <laughs> right? Like, right. like mm-hmm. it's okay. I was I was walking on the bike path, and all of a sudden a heron, like blew mm-hmm. past me, flew out of the canal, and flew right by. Um, you know, I told this funny joke at a bar with my friend, and and we all laughed. Um, you know. I came in the kitchen and my husband was cooking and it smelled good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these these are not, you know, striving moments. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, also, I, just I mean, I, I get how um, I get how gratitude can be something that you can practice even. Uh, you know, like what is Brother David Stendhal Ross, who I just interviewed, you know, he said you can't be gra- grateful for everything, but you can be grateful in o- every moment. So it's kind of an intention. Yeah, I heard that interview and I wrote that down. Yeah, that was great. But happiness, uh-huh. so so let me ask, so can you actually find a happiness moment even on a really, really, really bad day? Yeah, at that time, the happiest moment is the least bad one. Okay. That's helpful, And, you know, um, and for instance, you know, at a funeral, 
um, of a beloved family member, there can be a moment of great happiness. Um, mm. and, and it can be a moment of tremendous surprise. My, my grandmother died last year, and I went to the funeral, and I was sitting in the funeral home, and my cousin Cindy walked in the door, and I hadn't seen her in years, and I saw her face, and I just immediately burst into tears um, because of love and loss and shared family. And that goes in my happiness jar, weirdly, right. as the happiest moment of that day because okay. it was a moment of great aliveness, and it was a moment of um, great awareness of of time and of what's important and of love. Um, so, you know, I'm sitting by my grandmother's casket in tears, being very happy, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, being very happy that my cousin Cindy is there and that we're going to be able in one second when she comes over to me and gives me a hug, she's going to understand something about this that nobody else would. That is a very peculiar version of a happy moment. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've been able to find one every day. And, and you know, sometimes it's I got five minutes off today where from this horrible, stressful day where everyone was eating me like moths and... <sighs> I sat on the subway and I had five minutes of silence where nobody was bothering me. That was my happiest moment Okay. Of the day. You know? <laughs> that's, yeah. That's good. I'm glad I asked that question. That <laughs> An expansive definition of happiness. Mm. Um, we better have one or else we're in trouble, that's right? That's right. If we have, the more narrow our view of happiness is yeah. the less of it we get to have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't want to finish talking to you without kind of noting that irony of kind of the trajectory of your career and your you know your your persona and success as a writer um it was kind of interesting to me i didn't really understand how much you had really you you know you had really written a lot about men and for men and and been a journalist and and been i don't know what is it you once said you know you you were like the only girl in the room a lot <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and not, and so that's not really like the, the the trajectory of I think what people would expect of you know this person who eventually writes, eat, pray, love, um, and ironically, you know, that that is such a phenomenally successful project. But you know, you said once it it had not escaped your attention that when you wrote about a man's emotional journey, they gave you the National Book Award nomination. <laughs> but when you wrote about a woman's emotional journey, they shunted you into the chiclet dungeon. And I sense that you've, you've, this has been part of your kind of growth and reflection out of this is, and I wrestle with this too, um, with my work, like kind of pushing back against the idea that there's, that you, that, that there's something unserious about talking about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I just I would love to draw you out a little bit on that. Yeah, well, um, I spent my twenties um, writing about men for men, and I wanted to, and and it was very much a reflection of where I was in my life at that time. I was really interested in masculinity, and I think the reason that I was is because I wanted to be a guy. Um, and the reason I wanted to be a guy, and I don't mean um, literally, and, and, and certainly that's a very serious situation when somebody's yeah, born in a woman's yeah. body and wants to be a man. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm, what I'm talking about is um, I wanted to live the way men live. And the reason for that was because it was better, you know. Um, and I grew up watching what many of us grew up watching, which was 
men who had a great deal of freedom and women who followed them around and took care of them mm-hmm. um, and took care of their every need. And when I looked at those two models, one of them seemed a lot better than the other one yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. very clearly. And so I just threw myself into men's worlds. Um, I worked in, in bars. I, I, I worked on a ranch in Wyoming for a long time. I, I became a writer for GQ and Esquire and Spin, very much yeah, men's that's worlds. Right. Yeah. You know, like the most <laughs> – um, I, I mean, I threw myself not only into men's worlds but into men's worlds where they were they were spending their life studying what is masculinity too, right? Mm-hmm, um, and mm-hmm. examining that question again and again, what it, what it means to be a man. Um, I was just as interested in that as they were. And I felt comfortable in those worlds. And I mean, I even did a story for GQ once where I dressed up as a man for a week and lived as a man in New York and felt what that felt like, which interestingly, I didn't enjoy um, because I felt very constrained in that gender once I was in it. <laughs> um, right. I much preferred being a woman among men than being um, a, a sort of fake man among men. Um, but but what happened, I think, with, with Eat, Pray, Love is that it's a t- it was a time in my life where I sort of came out of the closet as a woman. And I had, uh, and I needed to because um, the the questions that I was grappling with were very much women's questions. And, and when there are certainly universal spiritual questions that I was grappling with, but the main one that I was grappling with and what ended my, my marriage was the question of whether or not to become a mother. And certainly that is the sort of ultimate woman's question. You mm-hmm. know, um, what is my biological destiny? Am I meant to be part of this story of motherhood and nurturing and nourishing, or am I not meant to? And and what am I supposed to do um, with society's expectations around that? What am I supposed to do with the sort of biological expectations around that? Um, what does it mean if I'm a woman who doesn't have children? Um, what does it mean if I'm if I take a different path? Am I still a woman? I mean, these are all, in a way, gendered gendered questions. Um, yeah. And and that led me to write Eat, Pray, Love. And although now we can say God, that just was such a commercial success. It just seems so obvious now. At the time, I was taking a very big risk because I quit my excellent job at at GQ and I took a very different voice on. And and whatever acclaim I had in the world or whatever, however I was known, I was not known as a woman who would write a book like that. Um, So it felt very risky to do it. But I also didn't really have a choice. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think... In the end, it comes down to that. And um, it's so funny. I had a conversation with Ann Patchett recently. And then, of course, I did get typecast as, as a chiclet writer. And, and I that was year zero. Like, all of a sudden, my whole history disappeared. And I just showed up as that person. Right. Um, and, and I've sort of remained that person. No matter what I do from this point forward, I will still always be the woman who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, which is fine with me. Um, but... You know, I, I was talking to Ann Patchett earlier this year um, when we did an event together in Nashville, and she said on stage that a few people in the literary world had said to her, if Elizabeth Gilbert had not written Eat, Pray, Love, she would have gotten a Pulitzer Prize nomination for The Signature of All Things right. for the novel that I wrote right. a couple of years ago. Right. But they just can't give it to me now because mm-hmm. I'm oh, I'm a friend of Oprah's, right? Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So um, how do you make how do you wrestle with that or how do you integrate that into you know how you move through the world how you how do you make sense of it I refuse to wrestle with it because that mm-hmm. would be an act of violence against myself and I really do mm-hmm. really do make an effort to not live in violence against myself mm-hmm. um the way I see it is um, okay, well, look, it'd be lovely to get a Pulitzer Prize nomination. <laughs> don't, mm-hmm. you know, don't get me wrong. If you ever want to give me one, here's my address. You know, you know where to find me. I'm going to continue to write 
the books that I'm called to write. I'm going to continue to speak about the questions that ignite and illuminate my existence within myself and in the world. I'm going to continue to serve the community who has gathered around me. Um, I'm certainly not going to get up every morning and ask myself what I have to do today to win a Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. that would be yeah. taking such a bad exit or just off to the be, highway of to, my life. to reclaim whatever seriousness is, right? To that you're, that you're, yeah, that's exactly. not going to be how you can how you um, what motivates you to get into the... it. Can't be. Mm-hmm. It can't be. And and if the price that I pay for having written a book that became a transformative presence in the lives of over 10 million women, right? Yeah. If the price that I pay and a for few that men. is to... Right. And a few Let's men. Just... And a few men. Um, <laughs> and a few husbands who had it read to them. And mm-hmm. um, is to be excluded from a certain, you know, from, from a certain um, very small enclave of, of, of serious literati. Yeah. Well, that's well worth it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's well worth it because, because what a great endeavor that's been in the world. Um, so... So it's okay. It's mm-hmm. to me, it's more interesting than it is appalling. You know, good. Um, you get to. I, be, I find it you just get to part be of curious the, about it. I just get to be curious about it. Yeah, it's like, well, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Like, but but, like me, but meanwhile, yeah. I have work to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have work to do, and I mm-hmm. won't do any work except work that brings me alive. That work that makes me feel like I'm lucky that I get to do this. That mm-hmm. I get to wake up in the morning and say, "This is so cool that I get to do this again today." That's mm-hmm. that's it. And if you're doing anything other than that, you're you know, it's not or for any other reason. Um, you're signing up for a great deal of suffering. Yeah. Um, okay, we've just got a couple minutes left. I I just want to share this with you because I was thinking about it all the way. As I was reading you, I was thinking about this conversation I just had like a week a week or two ago, which hasn't hasn't aired yet with a with the physicist Frank Wilczek, um, who who who's written an entire book about following the question, does the world embody beautiful ideas? Which so I just don't have to tell you more to tell you it's you know fascinating. I'm in. Okay, you're, I know. <laughs> I mean, I could tell you more, but that, but but one of the things he said that I am just so completely, I just love so much is that I'm carrying this idea around. He says that there are deep truths in the world, right? And he's talking about as a Nobel Prize winning physicist, and he's talking mm-hmm. cosmically. The definition of a deep truth is that. A deep truth and its opposite, that an idea and its exact opposite can both be true at the same time, though not necessarily if you're thinking about, not necessarily if you're thinking about them all at once. So, for example, for him, it would be like, you know, yes, we are as human beings, you know, made of light and air. And somehow, in ways we don't understand, following forces in the universe that are beyond us. And at the same time, we are thinking, feeling human beings who are making choices and making an imprint on the world. And it felt to me, as I was reading, you know, Big Magic especially, you know, it it feels like you were kind of circling around the same thing. Art is meaningless. Art is meaningful. Right? There's a sense in which both of those things can be true at the same time. It matters. It doesn't matter. Uh-huh. But but precisely that, or we are we are afraid. We are brave. Um, <laughs> but but somehow um, somehow it is it, you know the 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 fact of that complexity, that paradox, that creative tension, 
is a is a is a is a sign of how deeply true it is. How how deeply real <laughs> this is. Yeah, <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm remembering a monk in India who was teaching a class, and it was one of those moments where everyone's heads got twisted, mm-hmm. and people were like, "But if it's just an illusion, <laughs> mm-hmm. right. um, then." How, why am I suffering? Um, you know, or if it's just, um, if we are God in disguise, then why is there evil? Um, you know, if, if, if it's all about grace and everything's to our benefit, then why do dreadful things happen to good? You know, just all those questions that, that turn people's insides out, um, and make our heads explode. Right. Um, and, and I just remember him looking out and just, there's this lovely older man and he said, we're all adults here, okay? And then it, like, he leaned in like he was about to tell the greatest cosmic secret in the world. He said, so I'm just going to say it. There are paradoxes. <laughs> right. right. You know, there are paradoxes. We're all grown-ups here, okay? Can we just, like, we're not children, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and the wisest people I know, and I'm sure, that, and I know from, from listening to you for years and reading, your new book as well, that you know this to be true too, that the wisest people we've ever met, the ones whose feet we want to sit at, um, are the ones who seem to have the greatest internal capacity to hold those polarities yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Um, and and to be able to not explode or turn inside out or fall back onto the sort of intentional blindness of fundamentalism Um by just saying all of these contradictory things are true at once. Mm-hmm. And and the more space, and that's just a question I always almost feel like it's almost, a, it's like in the geography and the topography of your mind, the more air and space you can give for contradictory ideas to coexist, the better your life becomes. Mm. Um, and the less judgmental you become about yourself and others, um, the more accepting you become about madness and beauty. Um, and the more you can move through this mystery it, without causing a great deal of harm to yourself and others, right? Which yeah. is the highest teaching anyway, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And I, um, you know, I want to yeah. say, I feel one of the paradoxes in, in your life and in kind of the spirit and presence you bring into the world is you know, you are an explorer. We talked about, you know, you are an explorer, you're a traveler, you're a famous traveler and a famous explorer. Um, I think both literally and also in terms of your your life as a writer. Um, I also experience you from, a, from afar, but experience you as someone who is so completely at home in yourself, very exuberantly at home. And you know you you you've talked about um, in those wild years that follow the success of Eat, Pray, Love, like you know that finding your way home, that finding your way mm-hmm. back home, that 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 was something you understood to be um, something you had to do. I don't know. I I just want to I just want to name that, and I guess I'm curious if that is a way, or or how else you you would want to talk about like through all of this that you've lived and created and also your all the things you're hearing and picking up in the world now as you move through it um, as this person kind of co- in conversation with our culture like what what are you learning about that you didn't know before about what it means to be human um 
Um, I love how unafraid you are of the giant questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's what I... Okay. No, 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 I like it. It's just it. like, I'm how would you start talking about that? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think, here's what I'm learning, and here's what I'm seeing, and here's what I'm lately focusing on, and yeah. maybe even thinking about, writing about. Um, I feel like everything we want is on the other side of this dark river of self-hatred. Um, that is so prevalent in ourselves and in our culture. Um, there's a story about the Dalai Lama that when he first came to the West and somebody in the audience raised their hand and said, um, what do you think about self-hatred? It, it, the whole sort of conference ended for a while while he had to have a couple of translators mm-hmm. <laughs> sit there mm-hmm. and try to explain to him how a human being could be taught to hate himself. Um, and, and he was so, you know, he just said, there's a sort of transcript of his conversation in that moment of him saying, this is very concerning, Mm -hmm. you know, um, (laughs) this is, what are you doing? What are you people Mm -hmm. doing over here? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, um, and, and I see self-loathing everywhere I look, um, in, in so many different forms. And it's so, it breaks my heart. And I also know self-loathing. Because I have been in it. Um, you know, anybody who's been in depression knows what self-hatred is. Yeah. Um, you know, in many ways, um, depression is, is the best definition of it is anger turned inward, you know. Yes. Um, so there's this battle that's going on within you where you become a rival of yourself um, and an enemy of yourself. And what transformed my life about that journey that I took with Eat, Pray, Love were those four months that I spent in India where... I had to be alone with myself, and we really made a peace accord, you know. Um, and when I say myself, I should say myselves, right? Because right. I, I, you know, we're, we're not a self; we're self, yeah. we're selves. Yeah. And you know, one by one, I really went around to all myselves, and we shook hands and made peace with each other. And said, "We're not going to, you know, we're not going to operate against each other anymore." You know, um, this has got to be a better neighborhood to live in. <laughs> Um, we have to put down the weapons. We have to put down the old complaints. We have to put down the perfectionism. We have to put down the judgment. We have to put this stuff away because we're doing such tremendous harm to this poor being, um, Liz, who has to carry this war around within her. Yeah. You know, um, and and so I really came away from that trip having befriended. Um, and the word friendly, I keep using it in this. In this conversation, it's and I lovely. Use it a lot. It's lovely. It's a yeah. wonderful word, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, it's a another way gentle of word, like curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> People talk about self-love, and I think that's a very intimidating yes. concept. Um, I think friendliness is a nicer way to think about it. You know, can you can you be a little bit of a better friend yeah. to yourself? Um, mm-hmm. Would you ever allow a friend to speak of themselves the way you do in your interior moments? You know, and 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 so that's what changed everything. And even in the craziness after Eat, Pray, Love happened. I think part of the reason that I didn't get lost in that was because of the friendship that I had cultivated with this person who I am and and carrying that person around um, in a friendly way mm-hmm. <laughs> made those years easier than they might have been. And and so, so sometimes people will say to me, God, your life must be so crazy. Your life must have been so crazy after you pray love. And honestly, my thought is, no, the craziness was before. Right, right. Um, the craziness was what you didn't see, uh, what was going on in between my ears. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that mm-hmm. was the insanity. And when that's gone, 
then everything else that happens can be can be sort of ridden. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes, sometimes, as Jack Gilbert would say, you know, enjoyed. Sometimes you can even risk delighting in it. Um, but it's that spirit of of stubborn gladness and 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 friendly curiosity um, that I think is at the basis of ahimsa also, right? Um, that you're a friend not only to the world but to yourself. Um, yeah. And and in that and there you can find your way home. I think in almost all circumstances. Mm. I hope because mm. <laughs> I don't know any other way. <laughs> um, and that's the best I've got. <laughs> you know, I I think that's I think that's probably your last word. It's beautiful. I there's a line. You know, I, I've lived I've lived a while at this point too, and and. Uh, I don't. I don't think I have self hatred, and I'm. You know, I'm not sure. It's. It's hard to identify with that, even though I. And I would absolutely define some of my younger self in that way. But I, at the same time, you know, you have this line about, and this is again about emboldening creativity, cre- creative living. You know, this 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 way we can move through the world. And you say is kind of coming to the point where you can. You can decide that the work wants to be made, and it wants to be made through you. And you know, I just say, even as somebody who who feels like I've done a lot of work on befriending myself, but that's that's still a hard statement to claim, you know, for me, and I think for a lot of people, it's an aspiration to 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 be able to feel that way, to trust that. You know, what gets me through those ninety percent of it being boring part of creativity, without turning it into angst anymore. And I say anymore because I used to I used to do it. Um, is that faith that the work wants to be made and it wants to be made through me. Um, and so when it's not coming and it's not working and it's not being good and, mm-hmm. and I don't and I'm stuck in a in a problem around the creativity, it's a very important shift in my life over the years to n- to not think that I'm being punished um, or that I'm failing, but to think that this thing, this mystery that wants communion with me is trying to help me. And it's hasn't abandoned me. It's nearby. And it wants... It, it came to me for a reason. That's what I always think when I'm working on a project and it's not working. I think I, I'll, I will speak to the idea and say... You came to me for a reason hmm. because you trusted that you thought I could do this, and and I'm certainly trying. You want to throw me any more bones? I'm here. <laughs> right. um, but but in, but in the meantime, I'll come to my desk every day with the faith that you are also at my desk every day, um, and that the two of us, this human being who is laboring, and this mystery who's presenting itself toward me in whatever language it's able to, whatever signals and clues and and hints and 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 um, inspirations and and the sense of obsession and all, all the ways that inspiration comes to us, that it wants me to be with it. And mm-hmm. again, that's a sense of friendliness, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that it is friendly to me and therefore I don't have to despair. And somehow if I'm patient and it's constant, the two of us the idea and me will figure out how to make something in the world. And and through that process, I will become a deeper and truer version of myself. And so regardless of how the outcome turns, it will have been worth doing just for the communion with the mystery and the idea. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of a better way to live than to just keep doing that. Well, 
Thank you so much. This has just been, it's actually, um, it's just flown for me, which is not always true. Um, It's just been, it's been delightful. (laughs) Jack Gilbert would be happy. Um, It's been a delight. And, uh, and I've learned a lot and I'm, uh, I'm just, I'm so glad we, I'm so glad we finally got around to this and uh, I'll be so happy to put it out into the world. And I'm just glad you're out there. So grateful for what you do. I'm glad you're out there too, and know, Krista, that there are many of us who are glad you're out there, you know, um, because these these ideas being fertilized by this constant conversation, um, it's really important, and the and the people that you have on and the way that you talk to them has been really important to my life, and um, and I know a lot of other people's lives. So I think we just have to keep doing what we're doing. Yeah. Well, well, Thank you so much. And um, thank you. Yeah, and I, I did, you got my note through Sarah about the. I did. I, I did. Just, it was okay, beautiful. Well, and I would love to have your real email too to be able to have real communication with you without intermediaries. She sent. She's so discreet. She I know sent it she is, and I love attached. that about her. Well, tell I know, her. We all I'd, love, that I'd about love her. for you to tell her that she could pass, pass on that secret code. But <laughs> I know she would never. She would never without our permission, that's and that's right. why she's so yeah. tremendous. I'll tell her that. Um, I'll tell her that she can pass on mine too. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, but we'll. Uh, I hope. I hope our paths will cross, and you'll. We'll. Um, yeah. I think you've you've been talking to Maya, and she'll keep you informed about um, when you know. I'm getting ready to go on book tour, but we're actually producing in yeah. advance, and I think this is. I think we're doing this next month. Um, it's it's pretty soon. In any case, the next four to six weeks, I believe. Awesome. There's no expiration date on any no, of this stuff. No, there's not. So. <laughs> no, that's the great thing about a big conversation, too. It is true. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. I loved every minute of this, and um, and I know we will we will meet again yes. um, in the virtual and, as the kids say, IRL, in real life. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> All right. Take care. Thank yeah. you. Okay. Th- th- thank you so yeah. much, Krista. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.